The Slate Culture Gab Fest is sponsored by Friday Night Tykes. Gear up for a new season of the most controversial show on television. For these 10-year-old boys, playing a man's sport comes with a very high price. Friday Night Tykes, Tuesdays at 9 on the Esquire Network. Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest Whiteout Conditions Edition. It's Thursday, January 29th, 2015. On today's show, American Snipers, the new movie from director Clint Eastwood, it's doing Historic Bank, and it's also stirring up huge debate. We'll discuss it. And then, is political correctness making a comeback, and does that spell trouble for liberalism? We'll discuss a provocative essay from the political columnist Jonathan Chait. And finally, the Sundance Film Festival. I don't, have we ever talked about Sundance, Dana? We never have. I don't think so. I went to it last year and maybe reported back when I came back, but I don't think we've done a whole segment on it. I think it's the first time. Anyway, this is uh, great. We're going to be joined by Slate staffers Forrest Wickman and Aisha Harris reporting to us live from Park City. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. How are you? I'm good. Can't you tell? Uh, Yeah, you sound uh, jovial. (laughs) Fuck that. And, uh, (laughs) And Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. All right, uh, Julia, before we dig in, you have something you want to tell us about Slate Plus. Yeah, well, I just want to let our Slate Plus members and all of our listeners know what our Slate Plus segment will be. We're going to talk about snow. We're going to take the occasion of this week's blizzard that was or wasn't, depending on where you live, and talk about snow, how we behave in it, uh, what we feel about it. And I will also share the tale of my son's first terror which turns out to be of snowmen. So <laughs> we, we can discuss in Slate Plus. Sign up for Slate Plus if you want to hear our bonus segment. All right. Well, uh, digging in. Uh, American Sniper is the new-ish movie from Clint Eastwood. It stars Bradley Cooper as Chris Kyle, a Navy SEAL and a sniper who, over the course of four tours of duty in the Iraq War, became a military legend. It's based on the real-life Kyle's memoir. It also stars Sienna Miller as his wife. Uh, why don't we listen to a clip from the movie? Would you be surprised if I told you that the Navy has credited you with over 160 kills? Mm. Do you ever think that you might have seen things or done some things over there that you wish you hadn't? Oh, that's not me, no. What's not you? I was just protecting my guys. They were trying to kill our soldiers, and uh, I'm willing to meet my creator and answer for every shot that I took. The thing that uh, haunts me are all the guys that I couldn't save. Now I'm willing and able to be there, but I'm not. I'm here. I quit. You can walk down any hall in this hospital. We got plenty of soldiers need saving. Mm-hmm. Want to take a walk? Sure. So in that clip, you get a little bit of a sense of uh, how Bradley Cooper approaches the role, the accent, the taciturnity. But that clip, we should say, is sort of from the final third of the movie where he comes home and is sort of reckoning with his career as the Navy's most prolific, for lack of a better word, sniper of all time. I mean, it's he's known as the legend within the film. He notches something like 160 kills, and the movie focuses primarily on his work, basically, his work and his skill as a sniper and what that experience is like and the dilemmas that it puts him into. So that clip 
shows his performance a bit, but it's totally not quite what the movie is for most of its running time, right? Yeah, that's way more sedate. There's not many conversations in offices in this movie, but that's one of them. Okay, well, there is, I think, a lot to say about this movie. So, Dana, let's get to it right away. What do you think of it? Wow. I mean, yeah, in talking about this movie, we're talking about so many things. I mean, I think it's impossible not to acknowledge at the top of the conversation, as you did, Steve, what a huge box office success it was and what a surprise that was, given that films about these wars, about the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, have historically done terribly at the box office. Whether they're well critically reviewed or not, whether they have movie stars in them or not, nobody wants to go see movies about these wars. And this has been the first one that people have flocked to. So that's one thing I think we should definitely talk about. As for assessing its quality as a movie, okay, I'm not a huge fan of Clint Eastwood as a director in general. He his camera is a blunt instrument, right? I mean, he is not a, a subtle filmmaker, and he tends to make things in very broad moral brushstrokes. But, of course, that can also be very well suited to a war movie of this kind. So I don't agree with the school of thought that says that this is a piece of Republican propaganda and that it's some kind of a feel-good, rah-rah, let's-all-go-to-war kind of movie. I actually think that there's a lot of anti-war sentiment expressed in it. But at the same time, there's a lot of heroicizing of this character. So it's a complicated movie. I feel complicated about it. I think Bradley Cooper is great. And uh, if you can put on blinders and wall off the things that you know about the real Chris Kyle and how whitewashed the character was for this movie, I think it is quite a sympathetic portrait of a devoted warrior, a skilled soldier with an incredible amount of prowess, who, despite his protestations that he's just doing his job, as we heard in that scene, is being psychically damaged and, and undermined by the, uh, the, the trauma of the work he does. Uh, Julia, this is a theme we've been uh, hitting upon a lot lately. Uh, it seems as though maybe the antidote or counter- counterbalance to the comic book movie now in Hollywood is the serious nonfiction, you know, feature film based on nonfiction material. Selma, obviously, we did last week. Now, this one, before we get to whether or not the original source material was handled with dignity and what this movie might have owed the real Iraq war, tell me what you thought of it as a, an emotional experience or an aesthetic experience. What was it like to watch this movie? Well, it's very interesting to see the movie with the general cultural miasma suggesting that it's like a gung-ho, rah-rah, yay, war film, and that's why it uh, did so well at the box office, which it just is not. I mean, it's not a strongly pro-war film. I think some key to what's interesting about it and perhaps to even its financial success is the fact that it may be the first of these Iraq war movies whose subject is not the Iraq war. It's not the politics of the Iraq war. And that may be one of the movie's flaws. I mean, it may, maybe it's too soon to the Iraq war to just take the Iraq war as a historical context in which to offer a portrait of a man. But I thought this movie was actually much more interesting and subtle and complicated than I expected it to be or than I generally expect Clint Eastwood movies to be. Uh, and I think you know, the movie asks the question. I mean, the whole the whole notion of the sniper becomes a metaphor, right? You are a paragon of stillness in an environment of chaos. You are focused like a laser on a target that is distant from you. You block out the rest of the world. I mean, there's sort of a motif within the film of whether you should shut your other eye when you're shooting. And the Chris Kyle character believes in keeping your other eye open and, and having a vision of the periphery. But as a character and in life, he does not. He does not accept the need to do anything but focus on his goal, which is to protect soldiers by 
killing them. Right. He's a very non-introspective character, and, and Cooper plays him that way. He's not, mm-hmm. like, spective at all, intro, extro. Like, he's not looking mm-hmm. at anything except for what he can see through the sights of his gun. And, you know, I think the movie, for the bulk of it, is actually quite ambivalent about his devotion and uh, in some ways how misplaced it was, right? And And the final third becomes you know, a much simpler and I think tidier story. But the first two thirds are complex and rich. And I think I liked them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I went into this movie thinking, you know, sort of fearfully thinking I was going to watch a kind of, you know, red state, you know, fascist parable about, you know, the just cause of the Iraq war and walked away thinking I had seen like kind of a a masterpiece. I, I think this is one of the better wide-release American movies I've seen in a long time. I I was astonished by how good a movie it was. And, you know, there is this incredible moment in, like, American movie history where Michael Cimino wins the Academy Award for Best Director and Best Film, I think in 1978, for The Deer Hunter, which is a profoundly ambivalent movie about Vietnam, maybe the most perturbing one that had come out to that point uh, since the end of the war. And he's handed the Best Picture statue by John Wayne. And this is an amazing moment because Wayne is, of course, famous for having made Green Beret as one of his last big films, which was the attempt to make a very traditional pro-war movie about the Vietnam War. And it seems to me that since then, there have been these two kind of major traditions in American war movies, one of which is the Green Beret tradition of banish all moral ambivalence uh, uh, or, or, or as much as you conceivably can and still have recognizably human characters or, you know, the kind of, it's like a red state, blue state divide or the blue state version of the psychological trauma uh, of war and the deep dislocate, moral dislocation of violence and on and on and on. I thought this was a a movie that honored both traditions in this completely unique way. I mean, I, I really was, I was completely blown away by this film. I thought it was an astonishing work of craft uh, I thought the backfill tactic that he used, uh, Clint Eastwood used and the screenwriter used to go from the present tense to then tell the, the biographical story of uh, of Kyle was uh, very, very uh, neatly done and emotionally satisfying. But the other thing I thought was, as we've said about these historical movies, the, the problem is they they kind of get away with not telling an emotionally true story because they're telling a supposedly true story, but then they don't even tell a true story. And I thought this film, I knew nothing about Chris Kyle's story. I knew nothing about the movie going in. But what what moved me about this film is that you had to have their courtship be real between Bradley Cooper and Sienna uh, Miller, because so much of the movie is about their separation, their alienation, and whether or not he's going to, I mean, it's almost an Odyssean story, like how and under what conditions is he going to return to her? And and because that was emotionally true within the context of the film, I no longer really cared whether this was, you know, perfectly accurate uh, portrayal of uh, of the real Chris Kyle. I believed that story as it was being presented to me in the terms of the movie and the and the performances, both of which I think are just great performances. I mean, look, if I had a vote for Best Picture, I think this might be it. Whoa, I'm blown wow. away. I'm completely surprised. Okay, so now I need to I need another t- second rant, Steve, because I feel like th- th- there's a lot of ambivalence in this movie that now I want to acknowledge because you've come so down in favor of it. We'll get into the left wing or however you want to characterize it, backlash against the movie, for which I have almost no patience. The one thing I didn't love is the kind of mano a mano thriller 
aspect to some of the plotting. He has an equivalent on the you know insurgent side, who's also a brilliant sniper, uh, who's kind of handiwork in a perverse way. He's able to appreciate. I thought that was a little bit of a sop to traditional plot making. But other than that, I kind of thought this was an extraordinary movie. I was very moved by it. But Dana, I, this seems like we're, you and I are going to have. Uh, words to exchange. <laughs> yeah, I guess just your unified and very positive aesthetic response to this movie surprises me because I felt like I, while experiencing it, Julie, I don't know about you, but I was so kind of up and down in between like, oh, what a what a great moment between Sienna Miller and Bradley Cooper. Oh, but what a horrible kind of racist and xenophobic, you know, representation of the enemy. Oh, but what a critique of war. Oh, but wait, we're supposed to be cheering him on as he gets the bad guy. And it seemed like it swung wildly between being a classic Hollywood Western of the kind we associate with the old Clint Eastwood, where there's good guys and bad guys and kind of a moral existential crisis of the cowboy who must you know, commit an act of violence against his his deepest you know, moral um, code. All of that stuff existed in there. But there were also over-familiar stock characters from Cowboys and Indians movies almost. And I could definitely see, although you could say the same thing of Ben Affleck's Argo, but I could definitely see how the other, the Middle Eastern other in this movie was presented as, as an undifferentiated scary mass. Yeah, I mean, I think I fall somewhere between the two of you. I feel like I give this movie props for having a much more complicated and ambivalent worldview than some of its knee-jerk liberal critics suggested. But I think as its execution struck me as uneven because it's a movie that seems to want to be about that Odyssean return, but really focuses on the voyage out. I think like it focuses on how he gets alienated and how he gets further and further away from himself. And then at the end, he kind of like comes back through a few quick scenes where he, you know, you know, like he he is presented as having healed by the end of the movie. Yeah. And his rehabilitation is presented, I think, far, far too easily. There's also I don't want to spoil it, but there's this, a scene involving sort of uh, domestic gunplay at the end that I found very strange and disturbing. Yeah, um, there's a sense. I mean, maybe maybe that's also some of the ambivalence we should respect in the film that there's a sense of, oh, you're healed and I think you're healed, happy wife lady, uh, and actually, like, what the hell? Like, you are not healed at all. This is freaking crazy how you're behaving mm-hmm. in your kitchen. Yeah. Um, you know, so you could give the movie credit for that, but I do think that the kind of the emotional richness of that journey back, I didn't feel like it was served, but I respected the movie's intention to convey that and its complexity. And even, you know, so there's a scene that's been criticized where, you know, he's he watches, the Bradley Cooper character watches the World Trade Center towers fall on TV, and you see that footage again in the movie, which is obviously like a major string to pluck as a director, right, to expose us all to that footage again. And, you know, if you're a person who believes that the Iraq war was a mistaken response to 9-11 and that the relationship between these two events was flimsy and that the pretext for the entire war was misguided, as many people do, you can feel like, what the hell? But then you can also think, well, this is what this enlisted Navy SEAL sniper felt seeing that footage. I don't think that scene makes that connection at all. I mean, for one thing, he's already, as you say, been enlisted at that point, although it is implied that he enlisted in relation to another terrorist attack earlier on. But also Clint Eastwood himself is against the Iraq war. I mean, I just to see this movie as some sort of justification of Bush's policy in Iraq seems like a retroactive misreading of somebody who's not looking at what's on screen. Right. So I give points for ambition, maybe fewer points for execution than you do, Steve. But I do think that I found myself giving this movie a complete pass for 
the historicity question that we've now talked about several weeks in a row, right? We've talked about it with Mr. Turner, the, uh, the Imitation Game, and Selma. And this strikes me as a movie that actually among those three is most like Mr. Turner. Like, to me, it's mostly like a almost timeless existential portrait about the relationship between being human, being expert, and then being buffeted by forces beyond your control and violence. And I think part of what can feel off about the movie is that it's so focused on his subjective experience in the context of this deeply politicized event that all the viewers who see it will have strong feelings about. It's a little different to kind of wave off all the complexities and realities of the Iraq war and just use it as like a, you know, a backdrop, like in a Western, just, oh, there's a butte in the distance. Like, oh, there's some Iraqi people getting killed. Like the Iraq war is almost strangely inert in the movie in comparison to where the emotional heat of the story is, I think. And that's part of what, to me, makes the response confusing. But I do feel like given that the intent seems to be about the emotional truth of one man, I kind of give the movie a pass for misrepresenting Kyle's story. I don't find myself caring about it in the same way that I did with The Imitation Game or Uh, even Selma. I give it less of a pass in some ways, and that's part of my conflicted feelings. I think if I can put on those blinders and like just look through the gun sights that the movie wants me to look through, then I can see it as this character study, right, of this conflicted but devoted warrior. But when you start to read about the real Chris Kyle and the things that Clint Eastwood put blinders on, it it starts to make me wonder why he even based it on this character. Why not just create a fictional character that was maybe loosely based on that memoir? I mean, the comparison to Mr. Turner, Julia, it would be as if Mr. Turner, J.M.W. Turner, had a secret life, some some secret life of crime or, or, or horrible mistreatment of his fellow man that was just left off the table completely. I mean, there's there's some serious, serious whitewashing of what sounds like a very messed up guy in real life. And so I do have questions about why Clint Eastwood chose to adapt this particular memoir and then adapted in such a bowdlerized way. And for listeners who don't know and haven't been keeping up with these controversies, the real Chris Kyle, what are some of the things that we can say that he did? I mean, for one thing, he was mendacious and it was actually sued by former Minnesota Governor Jesse Ventura for a series of lies that he told in his memoir about him. He essentially went around kind of alleging that he had committed various acts of violence that he had not actually committed. So he was sort of untrustworthy in that way. And also, I think he, I've not read the memoir, only excerpts, but he he fairly openly gloated about his his kill record and was far from ambivalent or conflicted about it and essentially described the people he was killing as savages who deserved to die. Yes, I hear all of that. And of course, to, to take, there's also like moral qualms you can have, and I feel to some degree with even deciding to use the Iraq war and facts about a real soldier in the Iraq war as lightly and loosely as Clint Eastwood did. Like, it's very luxurious to just be like, oh, let's use this charming war we just had as a backdrop for a portrait about manhood. Like, eh, that's that can make you feel queasy. I totally understand that. But on the other hand, like, Chris Kyle is not a figure for the history books in the same way that Turner, MLK, or even Alan Turing are, right? Like, he... He did not change the course of art, thought, or history in the way that any of those people did. And right, if this were just a fictional tale about a sniper, I think it would remove some questions and qualms about it. But I, not knowing much about Kyle watching it and having only caught into these controversies afterwards, kind of feel like, eh, I'm just going to take it as a movie about a random sniper. And it doesn't matter to me. Maybe that's wrong, but that's how I took it. Steve, what do you think? I feel I feel as though I'm enormously sensitive to jingoism. I hated the Iraq War. It was fought on completely false pretexts. You know, at the same time, I am grateful for a work of art that honors the people who served in it. They 
suffered enormously fighting in it. And I feel as though there's a debt to those men and women, right? That, you know, war is very, it's very distant. It's a very class-based phenomenon now. You know, we, we live, you know, under the nuclear umbrella. We don't have these all-encompassing conflicts that galvanize and involve all of society. It's, you know, something that we kind of watch on TV. In this day and age, for better and for worse, we work out our public emotions and to a degree our private emotions about war. Certainly this was true of Vietnam, uh, via Hollywood, through Hollywood. And we're dependent upon those movies to be at least somewhat dignified and true. And in a weird way, how do you honor someone's service? How do you honor, you know, the cause for which they fought? How do you depict how that cause was corrupt or travestied in the execution? And how do you offer the public a serious meditation on violence and death and not in some ways make a failed movie? I mean, war movies fail because war is a failure, right? It's the ultimate failure. And and I thought this movie was mimetic in a dignified way to that experience. Uh, and so in that way, I just thought it was, I just thought it was a remarkable film. I have only one follow-up, Steve, to your um, remark about veterans, which it, it, I think it is true that this of the movies about Iraq has been the one that has probably spoken the most to returning veterans, but there have been others who have spoken out against it. I mean, it's been so divisive and so surprisingly divisive that, for example, Jane Fonda stood up in Clint Eastwood's defense, and several vets have written that this is a completely inaccurate portrayal of war. And so I don't think there's really any monolithic way that any sort of political demographic slab of American culture has reacted to this movie, which is one of the most interesting things about it. All right. Well, um, our feelings about this movie are still settling, but they're clearly not shallow. So it's going to be interesting to hear what you, you, our listeners, think. So please tell us. The movie's American Sniper, directed by Clint Eastwood, starring Bradley Cooper and Sienna Miller. It's uh, obviously available at uh, every uh, mall in America. Go check it out and tell us what you think. Facebook.com slash CultureFest. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor. Julia, what do we have? We are sponsored this week by Friday Night Tykes. This is the documentary series about Texas youth football that airs on the Esquire Network Tuesday nights at 9 p.m. 8 central. It follows five teams in the San Antonio division of the Texas Youth Football Association from registration all the way through playoffs and championships. And it's focusing on the 10 and 11 year old age group. And I think it really gets at a lot of different aspects of Texas youth football. Dana, you are from San Antonio. Are you? Is this show about your life? Is this, is this like Young Dana and Pads? Yeah, I think. Well, I was going to say this sort of sounds like Dance Moms, but for football kids. I enjoy Dance Moms from time to time, but I think this show would probably give me Texas PTSD because I just <laughs> grew up in a culture where, it, I mean, like Friday Night Lights, where there was such a cult of high school football, and every weekend was organized around it. And going back to it might. Did be you like brutal. watch all your high school games? Like, where were you? Were you a cheerleader? Were you sitting in the bleachers? Were you under? the bleachers or were you nowhere near the bleachers? What was your position relative to Friday Night Football games? We've talked about this before. I think, well, I started off my freshman year in high school in the pep squad, which was essentially the infantry through which you would eventually rise to something like cheerleading or dance teaming and being an actual part of the massive spectacle of the Friday night football game. But I realized only one grading period into Pep Squad that it was not my thing and it was not my universe and that the most I could ever hope for is that I would become like a corporal bossing around other people in Pep Squad and I would never actually become the five-star general kind of uh, athlete. athlete. <laughs> so 
<laughs> so I dropped that class very quickly and proceeded to pretty much avoid all football games. Although my brother and sister were both in the marching band, and so once in a while I would go to football games because they marched at halftime playing Eye of the Tiger in different marching formations. Amazing. Amazing. All right. Well, I cannot promise that you'll see any Dana siblings on this show, but it's Friday Night Tykes airing Tuesday nights at 9 p.m. 8 central on the Esquire Network. All right, Steve, what's next? All right. Thanks, Julia. Moving on. Political correctness is a style of politics in which the more radical members of the left attempt to regulate political discourse by defining opposing views as bigoted and illegitimate. So writes Jonathan Chait in New York Magazine in a much discussed and brooded about uh, essay about the resurgence of political correctness. Uh, He goes on to say, two decades ago, the only communities where the left could exert such hegemonic control lay within academia, which gave it an influence on intellectual life far out of proportion to its numerical size. Today's political correctness flourishes more consequentially on social media, where it enjoys a frisson of cool and vast new cultural reach. Julia, uh, let me go to you first. I, I let me begin by saying, I, Jonathan Chait to me has almost no peer as a political columnist. He's certainly among my favorites, if not my favorite. I think he's brilliant, spot on, and I've never uh, read anything by him that I didn't regard as totally serious. However, did he miss some target by a country mile on this one, as many people are accusing him of having done? That's an interesting setup, Steve, because I'm curious to know whether you think he missed a target by a country mile. The idea that on the Internet people take umbrage frequently about many, many things, some of which you might class as uh, political correctness or policing of speech or any of the sort of loaded terms that Chait uses here. You know, I think this is a real cultural current that's interesting and fascinating, and I've been looking forward to discussing it with you guys. In terms of Chait's essay, I thought that he offers a satisfying and interesting portrait of the way in which the dynamics of particularly the internet right now can sometimes curtail discussion. Like there's sort of an insider outsider who's worth listening to, who's not worth listening to group think that can feel stifling. But I was frustrated that the piece didn't do a better job of making the case for liberalism. What what Chait suggests is that political correctness is bad, invasive, tends to set allies of people on the left and liberals against each other as opposed to having them unite to fight actual injustices in the world, and that policing the speech of people who basically agree with you is not a good use of time. But he does not quite in the piece get into a proper defense of or analysis of what he simply asserts as like good liberal enlightenment principles Mm -hmm. without acknowledging any of the kind of potential problems there, pitfalls there. So I felt like it was missing that muscle a little bit. Like if the, if the point is please engage with me, argue with me, then I felt like it made sense for him to develop that argument a bit. Obviously there's the constraints of space. And then the other thing that I thought was missing is, and then I'm very curious for your guys takes on is how did we get here? Like, why are we having this cultural moment now? Why is outrage so au courant? Why is, why this now? Why did it sort of go quiet for a while there and seem to come back? And I'm just curious about the cultural dynamics at play there. And I'd kind of hoped that Chait would apply his historical lens to it. And he sort of waves his hand at like, oh, social media has taken these things out of the academy. But I, that felt unsatisfying to me. So those were the two parts that I thought were missing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Dana, it seems to me for an argument like this to work, especially uh, as it's made by a white male 
columnist of uh, enormous privilege, is uh, um, it has to posit this distinction between a real politics, I guess, of organizing and deep thinking about social ends, between that and um, and a sham politics of identity and outrage. And in order to make the sham politics seem convincingly like an exercise in narcissism, you know, your depiction of the real politics ought to be somewhat convincing. Is that is that what's missing from this piece? And if not, uh, tell us what you liked about it. There's a very broad and not very well mastered by Shade, I don't think, in the essay kind of undercurrent here that I would agree with, which is that the left has trouble unifying on anything, right? The left has has continually throughout its history fractured into all of these sub camps that argue with each other rather than agreeing on the basic progressive policies that they're trying to push through and get done. And it's something that happens in with Democrats in elections. And it's something that happens in the binders full of women Facebook group, Julia, which Chate mentions and that I know you at least for a while belong to and did find sort of irritatingly fractious. That is a thing that happens. And it's a thing that the left needs to get a handle on if they ever want to get anything done. That that I would agree with. But I think that a lot of the straw women that he is taking on in this essay, just they seem strangely scattered and essentially gathered because they make easy targets. For example, early on in the essay, he starts talking about Catherine McKinnon in the early 90s and this kind of extreme radical feminist fringe that even at the time, I think, was regarded as fairly fringy and not really an important part of, of academic feminism. It just feels to me in in many points in this essay like he's beating various dead horses that he dragged in from different places. And I'm not sure that they all are coming together to make the same argument. And I do feel some sympathy for the people who are tearing him apart on Twitter saying, boo-hoo, Jonathan Chait, you know, you have all the freedom of speech you want and you have a very nice uh, bully pulpit from which to issue it, you know, and to... um, kind of tone police, the tone policing of people who are trying to say things in a different way is not really solving the problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I would draw a pretty, I, I mean, certainly a distinction between outrage and PC, right? I don't think those are the same things at all. Mansplaining trigger warnings and the, I guess, affect, kind of pervasive affect of provoked trauma, maybe that young people have in college now. Uh, but that's too know, many things to put in the same basket. Do I you see what totally, I mean? No, 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 I totally agree. It's too scattershot. And also, I don't think that you can artificially unify them and call them, you know, kind of PC 2.0, because I don't think that that's what they are. I think it has a lot to do with generational issues, just the capacity for young people to hear an older person talk from authority about anything that's been pervasive in the culture for 30, perhaps 50 years. Um, The most important part of the argument, I do think, is that if... In fact, the best way to treat these things is to depoliticize them, see them as social phenomena, not political phenomena, deprive them of the importance of having anything to do with politics because they don't really. They're a set of personal preferences, individual quirks or grievances that do not add up to anything. And and the best thing to do is completely ignore them. There's a very famous quote from um, George Orwell in uh, 1937 where he says, uh, sometime, one sometimes gets the impression that the mere word socialism draws towards it with magnetic force every fruit juice drinker, nudist, sandal wearer, sex maniac, Quaker, nature cure-all, quack, pacifist, and feminist in England. And then he goes on to say the food crank is by definition a person willing to cut himself off from human society in hopes of adding five years on and on and on and on. I mean, or- Orwell had this same issue that Ch- Chait has uh, in slightly stronger form, which is that to the extent the left means anything at all, it has to be united around a common purpose that involves, you know, the socializing of certain 
functions that are now highly privatized and a degree of distribution of resources towards public. And that takes unity and a sense of purpose. And what I find rhetorically forceful about Orwell, but rhetorically not forceful about Chait, is his ability to say, the concept of socialism doesn't need to answer to every freaking crank that's attracted to it. And similarly, I don't think Chait needed to unify all of these disparate, privately aggrieved people into one single monolithic phenomenon called PC, because that gives it precisely the force that it doesn't have. Well, I think that's probably right, that that he's lumped too many different things together here and suggested that they're all part of one phenomenon, and that perhaps that is reasonable fodder for some of Chait's opponents to just dismiss him out of hand. But I will say that there is something, you know, some people have accused him of trolling. I don't think that's fair, but there is something kind of dismaying and automatic about the response to this piece that troubles me. You know, and the piece sort of sets itself up for that response, anticipates that response, and tries to short-circuit it in a way with the deck, which was, can a white male liberal critique the country's current political correctness craze, which, by the way, hurts liberals most? We're sure you'll let us know. You know, so the piece very cannily anticipates a swift and violent internet response. And sure enough, there was one with numerous responses suggesting that Chade is just a whiny, privileged white man, and people saying, ugh, Chade mansplains PC, I won't even read it, it makes my, like, so much exasperated eye-rolling, like, I won't even deign to read this piece, it's so disgusting. And I think what's frustrating on both sides here is that there's, like, an unwillingness to see the best arguments on behalf of the other side. And I think if the Chait essay had done a better job considering what some of the upsides of uh, really paying attention to making sure that different views are recognized and represented and what those have brought us as a culture, his critique of the way in which speech can sometimes get short-circuited in these contexts might have felt like it had more value and wasn't so dismissive of, you know, of some of these tendencies. I mean, I feel wary of and anxious about outrage as an automatic cultural mechanism. But these tools can be useful and valuable and can affect a sort of social consciousness and change that are that have merit and value. Like to to I would just happen to read a TV pilot that that my husband had lying around and in it lots of the characters are stipulated as being of various different races and I'm not sure that that would be true in the TV pilot 10 or 20 years ago. Like there is a general awareness that representations of different views and groups um, are valuable and that's good. And right. that's a response to some of this behavior. And it it is like helpful to the world that that is the case. Is it really a response to some of this behavior or is it a response to actual social movements? I mean, I think we need to make a distinction between someone policing everything someone else says uh, you know, um, you know, with a hypersensitivity to the slightest slip of the tongue, which is just, you know, a grotesque misuse of psychic energy uh, and helps no one. And, and large social movements that had front lines and were highly organized, you know, such as the civil rights movement and feminism, the fruits of which we're now seeing in Europe, husband's pilot and, you know, uh, I, I, I just don't, I don't think that the early 90s phenomenon of uh, campus hypersensitivity is really the reason. I, I don't think it's really 
its legacy is anything all that special. And you know, but regard, Steve, I, you don't think, for example, I mean, like Che tries to do this thing of talking about the 90s as if it was this time, this horrific time of kind of, you know, PC cultural control, and that now it's back, but doesn't give any credence at all to the reverse reading of kind of a genealogy, like that maybe these that maybe these questions are widespread and flying around social media right now, in part because African-American studies departments and women's studies departments and all kinds of interdisciplinary, intersectional questions about gender did start to rise in the academy at that time. And I'm not saying there's a direct trickle down, but it's the people who are being educated in those schools are now some of the people that are running media and making decisions about who gets cast in an mm-hmm. HBO pilot. And I think yeah. it's, it's, it's wrong to completely disconnect the two and say, like, that absolutely unconnected periods of PCness have popped up in these two separate 20 year spans, and that we are to compare and contrast them without talking in any way about the historical continuity of them. You know, I think there's a lot of pathos in this dynamic. Like, John Chait conceives of himself as someone who has written and thought and fought for things that the left in general broadly, not the left versus liberals, but progressives in general think are good and suddenly has found himself cast as like internet villain, basically, by lots of people on Twitter and the web who think that he's myopic about race and gender and privilege and other factors. And, you know, maybe he is, but it's, I think, as someone who sees smart points on both sides. There's something to me that is just dismaying about people shouting past each other or dismissing each other or not trying to actually have a conversation. And and that sense of frustration, even if it was not expressed in the most bulletproof, non-antagonistic way in this piece, I can sympathize with. You know, in a funny way, although it was in a much more lighthearted vein, this is reminding me of our conversation on ironic misandry. Remember when we had that conversation about the toast and the kind of right. man-hating jokes and so forth? I mean... It's I guess I guess it's this question about, you know, when one party who has been disserved by history kind of gets their turn to speak, right? How will they speak to that other party that, you know, at least in sort of the very schematic historical narrative is the one that oppressed them in the first place, right? Like, what do you say when you finally get a platform? And I think because the platform we now have is so huge and immediate and global, the Internet a lot of times what gets said immediately goes, you know, to the to the furthest extreme. And all of these arguments have to take place in sort of in public and in the most dramatic terms. So it's not that, for example, the mansplaining jokes might not be funny or might not be accurate or true of this particular Jonathan Chait piece. But it's nonetheless the case that their function is to divide, right? And that gets back to what I was saying earlier on about the left and Occupy Wall Street and all of these movements that keep kind of dividing, 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 dividing. Without acknowledging that, for example, if we do live in a patriarchal society, it's men's problem and women's problem, right? It's, it's, it's the culture as a whole and families and workplaces that are being harmed because of it. And we all sort of have to fight it together. I mean, it just sounds so corny. And that doesn't mean that jokes can't be told or that tones must be policed at all times. But it does sort of mean that we all have to acknowledge a common project if we want to get anything done. Right. And I think what part of the pathos of watching the response to this piece is, in part, you can say, look, trying to say something thoughtful and well-meaning, you know, maybe getting in a few jabs around the edges. But like fundamentally, this is a very sincere essay on Chait's part that's like, hey, I thought we were all just trying to affect social change here. Like, you know, this doesn't seem like the most productive way to me to do it. I get that it's problematic for me to be a white man and say this, but I'm just going to say it anyway, because I feel like it needs to be said. Like, that's his sincere approach to this. And to watch the response to it be like, 
Ugh, eye roll, groan, chate again, <laughs> boo, like forget this guy, spa day, mansplain, boo. You know, <laughs> like I get how that would just be heartbreaking for him. And I can't say that I love the response, but you can also argue, right, this is how it feels to be voiceless, right? Like this mm-hmm. is an experience of voicelessness. You've sincerely tried to articulate a view of the world and the world yeah. does not give a fuck. And, you know, I, there's like perhaps a little historic poetic justice maybe in someone who's used to being heard, having the experience of not being heard. Like I get that that's maybe satisfying for the people who are giving that response out. And I get that that may be historically useful for people to experience, but it feels like something to get through, right? It doesn't feel like that's where you want the end point of the conversation on the left to be. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is obviously a Pandora's box. We opened it. We're never going to be able to close it, but we do have to end the segment. The article is called Not a Very PC Thing to Say, How the Language Police are Perverting Liberalism. It's by Jonathan Chait in New York Magazine. It's also uh, available on the web would love to hear what the listeners to this show thought of the essay uh, as always go to facebook.com slash culture fest right, julia we have some business we need to take care of don't we yes before we teleport to sundance i want to ask our listeners for a small favor here at slate we are trying to learn more about who listens to podcasts we know of course me, Steve, and Dana know who you are on the Facebook page. We love chatting with you every week. But more generally, we want to know what kinds of podcasts you listen to besides ours, other Slate podcasts, other podcasts in the world, how often you listen to them, how you find out about new podcasts. So we've created a survey that takes just a couple minutes to complete. And if you fill it out, you'll help us continue to make great podcasts about the things that you love or things that you didn't even yet know that you wanted podcasts about. I want Dana to do a podcast about her outfits. I know that it rankled all of you when Steve started talking to us about our outfits, but the truth is Dana's outfits are so amazing. I would listen to a podcast about Dana's outfits. Um, all right. It may or may not be that, but to fill out the survey, please go to slate.com slash survey. It's that important a survey that we gave it the just plain survey URL. So, you know, we're interested, or you can click on the link that we provided in the show notes for this episode. That's slate.com slash survey or the link in our show notes. Thanks so much for taking the time to uh, share a bit of info with us. All right. Well, moving on now is the uh, time of year when the Sundance Film Festival gets underway. It's, of course, in Park City. As we said in the introduction to the show, we've never really talked about the Sundance Film Festival before, somewhat incredibly. To talk about this year's festival, we're joined by Forrest Wickman and Aisha Harris, joining us from Park City. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Thanks. Hey. Yeah, so Forrest and Aisha, you guys are out there covering the film festival for Slate. Um, tell us a little bit about just the rhythms of your days, like what you guys are up to specifically, and then and then we'll get into what the most interesting films are that you guys have encountered so far. Uh, yeah, I mean, I th- we've mostly been focusing on doing video interviews. Um, so it's been a lot of kind of making sure we can get into every screening for every movie that we have a video interview attached to, and not as much of kind of going through the the party circuit though Aisha I know you did a little of that last night um yeah that was actually the first party we'd gone to um myself and Raquel our booker we um last night saw the premiere of I'll See You in My Dreams it's a movie starring Blythe Danner and um Sam Elliott and uh they had an after party that we were able to go to for a little bit and uh they were there. There were some other stars there. Um, but mostly, like Forrest said, it's been a lot of um, video interviews and prepping inter- prepping for the interviews in between them, like prepping the questions and all of that thing, uh, stuff, and also going to see movies. I'm curious to hear a little bit about what some of the other 
movies are that you guys have seen that you're excited about? I mean, I think one thing that's interesting generally about the festival and experiencing it as someone who's not there but is a generally attuned culture consumer is it's kind of like... I don't know, it's almost like the fashion shows or something. It's like you're getting this preview of stuff that's going to come down the pike months later. You're getting it through this weird scrim of like hype and Lena Dunham's Instagram feed and, you know, who seems to be there tweeting about whatever they're doing. But you can't really tell if you're just kind of a general culturally attuned newsreader what the heck is going on. So what's it like to be in the thick of it? And what have you seen that you're excited about? And, and you know, do you feel like the right things are achieving the right level of buzz? Yeah, it's funny. We, because we've been kind of going from one interview to, to the next, you know, interview screening prep, interview screening prep, I haven't spent as much time, uh, you know, on on Twitter and, and looking at reviews and such as I normally would. So you guys may know just as well what the buzziest movies have been you know i haven't seen anything where i got out of the screening and i was like oh that's gonna win the grand jury prize that's gonna be the whiplash or the pulp fiction or or whatever of this year but uh i guess the two movies i was most excited about or most intrigued about going in were going clear the scientology documentary and uh the end of the tour which is the david foster wallace movie um it was based on a I think basically it just like a, a few days that he spent with Foster Wallace, uh, with Wallace when um, Wallace was touring um, on the success of Infinite Jest. So he had kind of just exploded. And they spent a lot of time talking about what that experience was like and, and kind of also um, the experience of profiling someone. I think it's a very interesting movie, either if you're a journalist or if you're at all interested in kind of how the sausage of a a celebrity profile gets made and uh jesse eisenberg uh slate culture gab fest favorite plays david lipsky and jason siegel plays uh david foster wallace and it's directed by james ponsel right the guy who made spectacular now um aisha what have been your favorite uh things you've seen so um, I think one of uh, my favorite films at Sundance this year has been one Forrest and I actually saw a few couple weeks ago before Sundance in New York um, called White God. It's a Hungarian film by director Cornel Mundrusko, and I may or may not be pronouncing that correctly. I do not speak Hungarian. Um, but the movie it has this um, sort of plan of the apes, but instead with dogs um, plot line. And it's really just really fascinating. The dogs don't talk but you get the sense of the dogs having like these human-like qualities with the way the camera moves and everything. And Forrest and I had the great pleasure of um, interviewing the lead dog from that movie. His name is Bodhi. In the movie, his name is um, Hagen. And uh, it was really fun. We also interviewed the director and the, the dog's trainer. And I think that's Wait, how do you interview a dog? Let's back up here. What did you say to, to the dog? Uh, what did we ask the dog? Sit. <laughs> we had one specific one. Yeah. So, I mean, we've been asking everybody that comes through kind of for their one, the kind of Sundance moment, the moment from Sundance that they'll never forget, whether it's an embarrassing thing. And so, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to spoil it too much, but I think the idea is that uh, at the end of this, we'll have a kind of montage of, you know, people like Michael Shannon and I don't know, Sam Rockwell and stuff talking about what their moment was. And then there will also be a cut to this dog. Yeah. And the dog, the dog also did some tricks for us as well with his trainer, which was awesome. Yeah, I, I really can't uh, <laughs> express how much I love this this movie. And one thing I really loved about it is, you know, when we talk about tricks with the dog, it's not like your kind of uggy kind of stuff where it's like roll over. I'm going to pretend I'm shooting you with a gun. It's it's like, hey Bodie, play happy. Play 
play sad and the dog will actually like enact these emotions. I mean, you know, it usually just means lowering your head and wagging your tail and stuff, but it, it's not like a super, it's a pretty deadpan movie. There's no CG. It's really fun and pretty moving too. It actually won the A Certain Regard, right? Which is basically the Weird Movie Award, right? It's like, <laughs> this movie is too weird to get the Palme d'Or, but it's great, so we'll give it I've the I've always wondered what, like a, what that translates to. It's like, because I don't speak French, it's like, it sounds like, I have a certain regard for that film. I'm not sure what it really means in <laughs> well, French, I think, but it's I mean, like, the regard more, more has to do with the director's point of view. Right, right. I, I think I would translate Un certain regard as like a, a certain gaze or something like that. Uh, like a, a unique viewpoint or something. It always seems like, I feel a certain way about you, which is a very inert <laughs> kind of prize to give. But in any event, um, one thing that I'm curious to hear about from you guys is what it's like to be in the middle of this kind of absurd media maelstrom where suddenly you're interviewing dogs. You know, Sundance has played a pretty interesting role in the American film industry from becoming almost a festival that begets a certain type of movie, right? Like, I think when it burst onto the scene, it helped crystallize what indie filmmaking was and that there might be an alternate path to making movies outside of Hollywood. Is is any of that apparent in your experience at the festival, or is it all just like a whirl of snow boots and dog tricks? So I think uh, that kind of reminds me of a couple um, big themes at this year's festival, um, you know, one of which is not entirely new, which is just this question of whether, you know, there is a quote unquote Sundance movie that tends to involve uh, white upper middle class people. And I've seen some movies like that, and some of them have been really good and some not as much. You know, I saw the new Joe Swanberg movie. His movies tend to be that way, but it was it was great. It was a great view of this marriage. And I think that's something that the festival is always kind of trying to improve and improve upon and, and get uh, more diversity, just in terms of the types of films and the types of stories. The other thing that people are talking about a little this year is whether Sundance is going to be doing um, more TV, whether there will be more premieres of, of TV shows, TV series. You know, Aisha yesterday interviewed the creators of this show, Animals, which you'll have the sad Aisha, but I think it was the first... TV series ever to premiere at Sundance, if, if that's right? It's the first TV series, at least according to a New York Times article about it, it's the first TV series to arrive at Sundance with the intentions of seeking a distributor. So they have um, 10 episodes in the can already. Mark and Jay Duplass are um, produce, executive producing it. And um, they are just searching for a distributor. And this is new for the festival. I think most people don't expect Sundance to become, you know, to focus primarily on television. I think it'll always be this kind of independent spirit. But I think that I wouldn't be surprised if in the next few years we see more television debuts and more web series and that kind of thing as Sundance just learns to kind of expand and, and move with the changing times. I mean, I think that Sundance has been pretty good about changing with the times in recent years. Interesting. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for uh, all the hustling you're doing out there. Your videos have been great. And um Thanks for chatting with us. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. All right. Well, now is the moment in our show where we endorse Dana. What do you have? 
This week, I'm going to endorse a certain episode of a podcast that's been recommended to me many times by listeners of this show and other places. I think on the Facebook page, people have told us to listen to it. And so I want to recommend a specific entry point that I thought was was a great one. Uh, the, the podcast is Death, Sex, Money. It's hosted by Anna Sale, who's a journalist at WNYC. And this particular episode, it's from last May. It's called This Senator Saved My Love Life. And it's about Anna Sale's own relationship with her boyfriend and without giving away the secrets of the episode, how their relationship relates to the relationship of Alan Simpson. <laughs> the uh, the senator from Wyoming and his wife Anne have have either you heard this podcast I heard before? It. It's Sex great. Money. It's so great. So it starts off as this incredibly charming and funny romantic story about Anna Sale and her boyfriend, and then morphs into this wonderful kitchen conversation with the Simpsons, who have been married for sixty years, about the history of their relationship, and they lay it right out there. I mean, they talk about their sexual relationship, about fights, about money, about everything, and it, it was just a wonderful hour of radio. It's it's a great interview. I, I endorse that endorsement. Oh, wow. That sounds cool. Uh, Julia, what do you have? You guys, I know I'm on a tear of endorsing foodstuffs and that that is lame. But uh, I, it's like just that time of year. It's like a cooking time of year. And I have, just remember the socks. You'll never sink lower than the bar of Steve endorsing the socks. So you're safe. <laughs> they sounded like good socks. Also, Wesley Morris endorsed socks. The sock endorsement, I will. I endorse that endorsement, too. A good pair of socks can stand you in good stead. But I'm endorsing white balsamic vinegar, which I recently got some of. And it is so freaking delicious. It's like much lighter on a salad. It has like sweet and tang to it. And I actually learned from a great cookbook or sort of a cookbook food book, a new book from the proprietors of DePalo's, which is a terrific Italian specialty store here in Little Italy in New York, that white balsamic vinegar is not actually real balsamic vinegar. It's something that's more accurately referred to as agrodolce, and it's basically a sweeter white wine vinegar. Um, and once you read that, you're like, oh, yeah, that's kind of what it tastes like. And I feel like there's a crisper, brighter salad dressing you can make if you use red wine vinegar than if you use balsamic. And if you use white wine vinegar slash agridulce, it is even brighter and more delightful than that. So as you are dressing your sad, wintry boxes of kale that are coming to you, not from the fresh farmer's market, but from the grim fluorescent aisles of your snowed-in supermarket, find some agridulce, throw it on there with a little citrus, uh, and you will be hardened with a crispy, springy flavor. I would say that I'm off the hook for the socks. <laughs> Don't you like salad? Aren't you like a freaking vegan? Aren't you forever questing for new uh, moisteners for your greens? <laughs> I, I, this is... This is really the highlight of my week right now. You're evading the question, dude. We need to put you before a Senate committee on salad salad emollients. <laughs> Apparently. Um, am I allowed to endorse now or do I? am I going to be uh, interrogated uh, more? Endlessly? Eh, I, I guess. I guess. Okay. All right. Well, I am going to, going to endorse uh, the book The Rediscovery of the Mind by John Searle, which I finally got around to reading. Uh, came out in the early 90s. And um, it's, um, John Searle is a, philo- a philosopher at UC Berkeley. He's probably now in his 80s, I would think. I think he is in his early 80s, uh, kind of a titan of American philosophy. And he has been on and off, but overwhelmingly interested in the philosophy of mind and con- the nature of consciousness and the supposed philosophical problem that consciousness poses and the scientific problem that it poses. And um it's you know it's a funny book it's it's i don't actually agree with it he he posits a theory of biological naturalism that i ultimately disagree with but he he frames the issue with such lucidity 
and rhetorical simplicity yet force that to the degree one is interested in philosophy of mind and the nature of consciousness and whether we're essentially a dualistic human being with a spirit and a body that are made of separate stuff or whether we're just simply material, you know, uh, uh, physical material all the way down. You know, I mean, to the extent you're interested in those issues, this is such a great summary of why they're issues and how they've bedeviled people and how different philosophers uh, have treated them. And there was something about like the snow. We actually got up in Ghent hit by the snow decently heavily, probably eight or 10 inches at the end of the day. And, you know, my kid's home from school and really nothing to do. Um, and, uh, you know, except all the good stuff like Scrabble and, and backgammon and roaring fire and some like, and I just like poured myself a noonday Lafroig, made a roaring fire and opened this book. And it was just freaking heavenly to blow through it in three, four hours. And it, it's something about when someone writes with simplifying lucidity about something that's inherently vexed and complicated it makes you not only feel as though you, you their mastery becomes your mastery and in a way that's partially a little bit false you suddenly feel brilliant in a way that you weren't before and it was something about like the combination of the snow day the scotch on the rocks and the roaring fire and and having my iq you know uh, uh, increased by 25 percentage points that was just a heavenly experience so anyway i really like john searle's work check it out. I mean, he's sort of on the philosophy of mind beat for the New York Review of Books and has been for, I think, decades now. It does a beautiful job. That's my endorsement. Um, Man, can I, ta- can I have the whole afternoon? That sounds luxurious. <laughs> yeah, I know. I wanted was, to, I just, the Lefroig and the fire would be fine. Yeah. <laughs> Although that's scotch, right? Scotch is actually kind of disgusting. It is. Um, uh, anyway, all right. Thanks, Dana. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Thanks, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Uh, Our uh, intern is Lindsay Albrecht. The managing producer of Slate Podcast is Joel Meyer. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. And our Twitter feed is Slate Cultfest. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. Where is Michael? Where is Mark? Where is Matthew? Now it's getting dark. Oh, where is Joan? They're all out back under 50.